Okay, so we're reading from Luke chapter 24, verse 36 to 49, and you'll find that on page 1061 um, if you've got a church Bible. Okay, so from verse 36. Whilst they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of the joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Amen. Uh, do keep your Bibles open, uh, or if you prefer... You'll uh, find on the handout you got when you came in, I believe, that the um, passage is printed on the left-hand side there, and there's a place to write notes as well, if you would like to do that. So we're looking at this week and last week, and I believe you're going to continue in this, at the hard words of Jesus. Uh, And Jesus did bring hard words for his people. Last week, the words were hard in that... Jesus was talking about really giving your entire life to him and not being able to be his disciple unless you're prepared even to lose your life for his sake. Now, Jesus has got other hard words for us. And the hard word is this, not just that you might need to lose your life for him, but that you might need to look like an idiot for him. I think lots of us kind of... Really, we don't face losing our lives or giving a great cost day by day, week by week. But many of us are very protective of our reputations. And the last thing any of us want is to look like an idiot. But Jesus says, no, as you follow him, this may be part of what it involves. Now, really, to get into the headspace of this passage we've just read, we've started partway through a story. And what we need to do is, uh, as we come to that story, is first, I think, come to a particular headspace, a way of thinking that will open it up to us. I'd like you to imagine that you are a person who is profoundly and passionately committed to a cause, or particularly profoundly and passionately committed to a person, only to see that person or that cause fail publicly and for you to be identified as someone who had supported it supported them as it collapsed in a heap so imagine for a moment and i'm not imputing a political view onto you but imagine for a moment you were a member of the government 
in September last year and you were a Tony Abbott backer. Hard, loud, going up to the media with all the leadership speculation going around and around saying, Abbott's the man, he's the leader of this party, we stand behind him, he has my vote, he is absolutely the right guy for the job, no question about it, there'll be no spill or overthrow, nothing like that. And then you walk into the party room meeting and an hour later walk out behind Malcolm Turnbull as the new Prime Minister. And you feel a bit like an idiot because you have gone on record, publicly stood up, backed, been behind someone who in the political world uh, has failed and been torn down and you were right there next to them and your page is on the front page of the newspaper with them as the loser. How much more insane would it be then in that situation, if you then decided, what I'm going to do now, given this has just happened, is walk out, call a press conference and tell everyone, get behind Tony Abbott, he's fabulous. He's the man for the future and all of us could keep following him all the time. You'd, you'd, be, you'd look like an idiot. You'd look like a prize idiot. But it's that kind of headspace that you really need to be in to understand these hard words of Jesus. Because Jesus is calling his followers to go out with a message so insane, so ridiculous, that at the very least they're going to be ridiculed, if not persecuted. Now to understand this, uh, we need to realise where we've picked up the story. We've come in here at Luke chapter 24, uh, starting at verse 36. And if you know uh, Luke's gospel, chapter 24 really recounts the resurrection of Jesus. So uh, last week we're in Luke 14. We've jumped a long way forward. Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem in chapter 19. Uh, he's been tried, uh, died and risen again. And that's where we find ourselves. But we really suffer, I think, as we read this, uh, from, uh, if you're a Christian believer, you may just be so over-familiar with this. So familiar with it that you just assume this was always going to happen. Like, you know, you kind of leaf through Luke's gospel. You go, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross and next he rose and that was always going to happen. It was always going to happen, but the disciples didn't get that. The disciples didn't get that. Think about the disciples' last experience with Jesus prior to this moment. It's on the same page here, just back in Luke 23. Uh, we see that. Uh, what the disciples have done, of course, is they have followed Jesus all the way. Last week we spoke about giving up everything to follow Jesus, giving up uh, even spouses and mothers and fathers and children and even your own life. And Jesus set the bar really high and said, if you don't come this high, you cannot be my disciples. And the 11 said, okay, we'll do it. And they left everything. And they followed Jesus. They threw their lot in with him. And they believed his message. And as he headed to Jerusalem, they followed him. And presumably, they thought Jesus was going to accomplish something really significant. A great victory where he would be recognized as the king, the Messiah. As uh, way back in Luke chapter 9, they had declared themselves. They knew it was dangerous. Jesus had talked about his death. But presumably, some of them at least thought it was going to work out okay. 
That is, I take it what they felt was going to happen was Jesus was not actually going to die or Jesus was not going to fail to bring about a political revolution whereby the Romans would be booted out. A Jewish leader would again have proper lead over the nation uh, and things would be set back to rights. The Davidic king would rule forever. I take it they figured it was like the first Star Wars movie, not the new first Star Wars movie, but the real first Star Wars movie, the, the, the episode four with Luke Skywalker, and if you haven't seen it, I'm about to spoil it for you, but where at the very end, he's flying down in his uh, little spaceship down the, the trench of the big battle station, and he's got to drop this one shot to blow the whole thing up, and he's lining it up, and yet the bad guys are chasing him. And he is just about to fire his shot, but the bad guys are closing in. They get the lock on him. They press the fire button to blow him. They think, oh no. But at the last minute, Han Solo flies in, shoots the bad guys. Luke gets his shot away. Everyone's happy. I take it the disciples had seen this film or ones like it. And they thought, this is what is about to happen. Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to confront the authorities. He's going to look pretty scary. Uh, it could even look like it's all going to go wrong. But then at the last minute, something will happen. And he'll win, and we'll all cheer, and it'll be magnificent. But instead, what happened? Jesus was captured, betrayed and captured in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was mistried and falsely convicted. Even Pilate said, the man has done nothing wrong. It doesn't matter. He was still sentenced to death. He was beaten. He was mocked. He carried his cross and was publicly executed with other criminals for the whole world to see. Here are the wrongdoers, and this is what happens to them. He was hung on a tree, which uh, in Jewish uh, recollection is, of course, the place of the curse. He was not victorious. He failed. He died. And people walked past and saw this great political revolutionary who'd been stirring up all kinds of contention in Judea and Samaria and Galilee for the last three years, finally shut down and silenced. And the Romans and the Jewish leadership had won. So back in chapter 23 of Luke, verse 48, we're at the foot of the cross. And all the people who, who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place. They beat their breasts and went away. But those who knew him, including the women and including the disciples, presumably, who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. This is their last experience of Jesus. We gave up everything. We followed him. We believed he was going to bring a great victory, and then this happened, and then this happened. What would they be thinking at this point? Uh, where we pick up our story uh, in chapter, uh, chapter 24, beg your pardon, verse 36, the disciples are gathered together, and presumably they're in a state of grief, uh, at the one hand, they're grieving their friend. Jesus, they'd been with for three years. They had a very close relationship with him. He was someone who had, they had come to love, and now he was dead. So that was something to be grieved. But on top of that, I take it something else was going on. I take it they're sitting there feeling profoundly confused. 
uh, perhaps even quite angry, uh, resented, resentment, deflated. They've got things going through their heads like, was this guy actually a fraud? Have we been had? Have we been suckered? Have we been led on this ridiculous quest that actually ended up going nowhere and we look like a bunch of fools for following him? And now, probably our lives are at risk or people are going to be worried about us because we associated with him. Uh, there's, there's a tension and a confusion and an anger and a frustration in all that. Maybe, though, there's even a more frightening thought. Maybe they still think he was God's anointed king. He was the Messiah. He really was the one who God sent to save his people. And it's all gone horribly wrong. He's been killed. God's plans are not going to work. This was God's king. He triumphantly entered Jerusalem just days ago. And now he's dead. Has God's big salvation plan for his people gone off the rails? Is that what a horrible situation we're in? And it's in the midst of all that that we pick up our story. If we just jump back a few verses to verse uh, 33... We see there it talks about they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. Uh, they there is two other people who are not disciples, uh, but well, d- disciples, but not the eleven uh, followers of Jesus, Cleopas and a friend of his, who were going from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And if you read the first part of Luke twenty-four, on this journey to Emmaus, they had an encounter with Jesus, who had been killed. Also, uh, further back, we see that Peter, one of the apostles, had also had an encounter with Jesus. So when we get to verse 33 and 34, uh, Cleopas and his friend get up and uh, return at once to Jerusalem. They find the 11 disciples and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true, Uh, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two said, what happened to them? And how Jesus had been recognised by them when he broke bread. That is, into this whole mix of emotional confusion and uh, perhaps some anger, perhaps some uh, fear, perhaps some confusion. Now they're hearing these reports. He's alive again. He's alive again. Hang on, what's going on here? What do they feel now? Do they feel a bit of hope? Do they feel this is just ridiculous? Do they feel jerked around? Stop toying with us. Can you please just... Leave good enough alone. And in the midst of that, verse 36, where our reading for the day starts, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Jesus clearly, in his appearance, he knows what's going on inside them. Uh, Peace be with you. His words didn't seem to have their intended effect because the very next thing we read in verse 37 is they were startled and frightened. Uh, the Kind of the opposite of peace. They were startled and frightened. Uh, and why were they startled and frightened all of a sudden? Well, I think there's two reasons. Uh, that One will be obvious and another perhaps not so obvious to us but really important that we uh, come to understand it. And the first obvious reason is that he is Jesus. He's a dead man alive again. What is going on? Cleopas and his friend and Peter are telling the truth. 
the guy that we saw die, that we saw hanging on a cross, when people beat their breasts and walk away, and he's, al- he's alive, he's right here. Of course we're frightened. Of course we're startled. What on earth is going on? But there's something else that we need to see in this text that's going on as well that's frightening and startling. Jesus is here, but something has changed about him. He's the same Jesus, but something is different. For starters, he appears in the room. How did he do that? Where did he come from? Uh, Secondly, they look at him and, and they think he's a ghost. That is, I take it they're not just saying, we think he's back from the dead, but there's something about his appearance that seems peculiar, ghostly, would seem to be uh, what is the first thing that comes into their heads. Something has changed about Jesus. Something has changed. Now, I think this is a really, really important thing for us to understand. And I want to say, it seems to me that uh, lots of Bible-believing Christians, and uh, particularly uh, evangelical Christians, uh, often get this wrong. We are often profoundly convinced that Jesus rose from the dead, as we should be, But what we tend to think by default is what that means is he came back to life just the same as he was before. We think Jesus died and then just kind of woke up again and was exactly the same as he was before. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches not that Jesus died and revived, but that Jesus died and rose on the other side of death to a new kind of life, a resurrection life. That's eternal and imperishable. And in many ways, though completely physical flesh and blood, at the same time, radically transformed. The greatest teaching in the New Testament on this is in 1 Corinthians 15. You can flick that if you like, or I'll just read you a little bit of it. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Corinthian church is having this question about what does it look like when people are resurrected? And Paul answers the question directly. 1 Corinthians 15.35 Someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? And his answer is not, it's patently not, the same body they had before. His answer is patently with a new resurrection body. He says, how foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed perhaps of wheat or something else. He's saying what you plant, or in this case what dies, what goes into the ground, is not what will be, but just the seed of it. And something new comes out. Verse 42, So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. Sown in dishonour, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. Verse 50, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will raise imperishable and we will be changed. The teaching of the New Testament is consistent on this. What Jesus did in his resurrection was rise back to flesh and blood, to be sure, but to transformed flesh and blood, something that had become more than he ever was prior to his death and resurrection. 
Jesus is raised eternal. And this, I think, is part of what frightens them and why they think it looks like a ghost. And if you go back and read that story about the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his friend, uh, what you'll see there is as they walk, Jesus joins them and they don't recognise him. They don't recognise him for ages. They have a conversation with him, uh, kind of, it's a bit humorous really. They're telling him about Jesus, not realising that he is Jesus. And it's not until they sit down and break bread that finally their eyes as it were, are open and they go, oh my goodness, it's him. He appears in locked rooms. He's, he has some kind of ghostly appearance. He has changed and it's kind of profound in its difference. Jesus, of course, back in our passage from verses 38 through to 43, makes it very clear that he has not turned into Casper the friendly Messiah. He's not a, he's not a ghost, it's still flesh and blood, even though it's different. He makes his point very clear, doesn't it? He says, when he, uh, look at my hands, look, well, beg your pardon, go back to verse 38. Why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. Uh, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. Presumably showing them his hands and feet is showing them the marks of his crucifixion. Uh, that is, not only am I flesh and bones, but I am the same guy who died on the cross. You can see the holes where that happened. Even though I look different in some ways, here's the proof that it's me. He shows them his hands and his feet. And then uh, as we get to uh, the second half of verse 41, uh, do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He still eats. There's still something very flesh and blood and human about him. But he's changed. He's changed something radical. Well, verse 41, we see in there, the disciples, uh, it's, a, it's a great verse. He says, while they did not believe it because of their joy and amazement, all this was having. So they're kind of joyful. Wow, it is him. They're amazed, but they're sort of going, I, I can't believe it. It's still, the pieces have not all clicked together. I haven't quite understood how this works or what it looks like or what it means. They're still puzzling it out. But notice what comes next. Jesus does not then say, this is what you need to focus on. He doesn't say, okay, now what you need to do is go away and really understand what has happened uh, in how people are resurrected and what resurrection bodies look like and the fact that there's life after death and it's different to life before death. He says, no, no, no. They're amazed. They're kind of in a state of disbelief. Jesus doesn't say, now you've got to work that out. Jesus goes on to say, something I need to make clear to you and there's something you have to do and here's what it is he starts out in verse 44 by telling them despite the fact that this is a new experience for you this is exactly what was always going to happen this is exactly what was always going to happen uh, so verse 44, he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Saying at the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms is a way of talking about the Old Testament. So the law of Moses is the first five books, uh, the, prophet, the prophetic writing and the Psalms. This is the collected works of the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, remember what I said to you uh, before I died. And also, remember what's in the Old Testament writings. They ag we agreed that they say this had to happen. 
this had to happen. I'm not telling you something new. God's plan hasn't suddenly changed. It was in the Old Testament. It's what I said to you while I was with you. And it is, of course, if you read after Luke chapter 9 where they've recognised he's the Messiah, three times Jesus goes on to say the Messiah must suffer and die. The penny didn't quite drop. And then in verse 48, he goes through and basically has a Bible study with them. Jesus opens their minds so they could understand the scriptures, those Old Testament scriptures. And he told them this is what is written in those Old Testament scriptures. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So Jesus says, look, you guys are processing this experience. It's radical. It's weird. You're shocked and amazed by it and you're still working it out. But what I want you to know now is this is everything that the Old Testament always said would happen. And it's exactly what I've been telling you would happen. So in some ways, though it's a profound experience, it's not really news because it's always been part of the plan. It's always been part of the plan. So that's what you need to understand. This is what was going to happen. This is the message of God, that the Messiah will die and rise. And now he goes on to what needs to happen now. What needs to happen now is not just a whole lot of reflection and processing and soaking it up and making sense of it all. No, what needs to happen now is something else, which is verse 47. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. That is, now that this has all completed, now that what was uh, foretold in the Old Testament was completed, now that what I said was going to happen has happened, now what has to happen is this news needs to go out. It needs to be proclaimed. And not just as an interesting piece of information, like, oh, did you know? Oh, that's very interesting. No, no, but as information that needs a response. People need to hear this so they can respond to it. And the response they need to make is a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance means turning back to God. People need to turn back to God now that all this has happened. And in doing that, they'll have their sins forgiven. Of course, this is the purpose of Jesus dying on the cross, isn't it? Uh, Jesus' death on the cross wasn't a great failure. It wasn't uh, God getting everything wrong and what he was striving to do through Jesus' failing. This was where it succeeded. Because on the cross was the great victory. Not the victory over the Romans, some empire that came and reigned over the whole world for a few hundred years as if that's a big deal. No, victory over sin. Victory over the power of Satan. That's what was done on the cross. Jesus paid the price for the sins of the whole world in his sacrificial death and paraded that before the spirits, before the powers and principalities saying, you now have no power of accusation because the price is paid. These people who trust in me are clean. And he rose from the dead, not just to startle people, but to show those who follow him what their future will be. That is, if you've ever asked the question, what happens when I die? The answer is, if you're a follower of Jesus, look at him, because he is the first fruits of the resurrection. He shows us what is going to happen to all of us who follow him. We're going to be transformed, just like we read from 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be made new. We're going to be fitted with bodies that are suitable for eternity in the presence of God. They'll be flesh and blood. They'll be real. We'll be able to shake hands and touch and eat but will also be able to be translated into the very presence 
of God in bodies made new. And this news needs to be told to the world so that people can turn from their sins, receive the forgiveness that Jesus won for them on the cross and inherit that future where they will be resurrected and share with him and with those who believe in God's promises forever. That's what's happened. Jesus, has, the, the Messiah, has died and risen. And what has to happen following is that repentance for the forgiveness of sins needs to be proclaimed to the world, starting at Jerusalem. Verse 48 then, Jesus says, Moreover, you are the witnesses of these things. That is, you 11 disciples and those with you, though you are baffled and confused, and there are so many things that don't add up, and you're kind of stunned and overcome... Now you, need, you are the ones who have seen, and now you need to go and tell. Don't worry that it doesn't all make sense. The, the great commission of the Lord Jesus is not, you will be the people who work it out and make sense of it. The great commission of the Lord Jesus is, you will go and tell others. And the disciples are the ones who were commissioned to get the ball rolling, to start with this message of proclamation, to start telling the world. And remember this would have been a crazy thing to do. Walking out of that room and going out and telling the world, guess what? Jesus is the king. Guess what? Jesus has won the great victory. Guess what? Jesus is alive. Would have been as stupid as walking up to the camera after the spill in September where Malcolm Turnbull won the election and said, guess what? Tony Abbott is the PM. Guess what? We should follow him. Guess what? He's got a great future for us in store. It would have been as stupid as that after everyone had just seen Jesus killed. And Jesus says, here are my hard words to you. Go out and make fools of yourselves, telling the world that I won, that I'm the king, and that I'm alive. And that they need to turn to me for the forgiveness of their sins. It's remarkable as well, isn't it? Because again, remember that verse 41 they still did not believe it because of their amazement. Jesus is calling people who haven't got it all figured out to spearhead his mission into the world. This is precisely the same, by the way, as what we see in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, some of you may well be familiar with what we call the Great Commission from Matthew. Uh, that is, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, uh, before he ascends into heaven to be with the Father, he calls the disciples together and he commissions them in the same task. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Uh, that's Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20. But if you just back up to Matthew 28, verse 17, just a couple of verses before, when they saw him, the disciples, they worshipped, but some doubted. The same thing is going on in Matthew. Here's a group of people who've seen Jesus. They worship in their more of him, but they, they, they don't get it. There's doubts in their mind. There's confusion in their mind. It's not all signed and sealed and finalised. So it's good to know, isn't it, that it's never been God's plan that we'd have it all stitched up and be people without doubts and that we'd go out confidently into the world. But it would be that we'd be people who, with our doubts and without everything stitched up and perhaps feeling a bit silly about that 
would go out into the world with the message of his son. Of course, we don't go out into the world alone. We don't go out unequipped. And we don't actually go out without confidence. Because God has given us more than just this good news. Our passage ends in verse 49. Where after Jesus has said to the disciples, you are witnesses of these things and therefore they'll need to go out. He says in verse 49, I'm going to send you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. This is a reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And uh, you might know that Luke wrote not only Luke's gospel, but he wrote the book of Acts, which is really kind of like part two of his story of the work of Jesus. And the book of Acts is all about the coming of the Spirit, enabling people to go out and tell the message. Now, we have to be very careful in understanding the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. Um, We haven't got time to go through it in detail here. But uh, while we see in Acts many people have a particular experience of the Holy Spirit, we also need to note that that is not uniformly the case. Some people don't have the same experience as others. But what does seem to be pretty uniform is that people are empowered by the Spirit to tell others about Jesus. If there's one sort of constant thing that the Spirit brings people, it's the capacity to go out and speak confidently about Jesus. That's exactly what Paul writes as well in 1 Corinthians when he says there is one Spirit but many gifts of the Spirit. That is, we will not all experience the Spirit the same way. So don't wait until you've had some ecstatic experience as though, oh, now I've got the Spirit. No, Uh, We know that those who believe receive the Spirit as a deposit. That's Paul again in his letter to the Ephesians. The Spirit comes to us when we believe. The Spirit actually is the one that convicts us of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Spirit empowers us to tell others whether or not the Spirit may give some of us amazing experiences and may not give other ones of us the same. Nonetheless, Jesus says uh, for the disciples, the Spirit will come to them when they are in the city, that power from, will, from high will come, from on high will come, and in that power they will go out. And if you're interested, read through the book of Acts and notice how much, again, the coming of the Spirit is immediately followed by proclamation of the Lord Jesus. That's the point here. We stand today, those of us who are Christian believers, in the ongoing story of what began here. Uh, We, on the one hand, are those who have received this message of the death and resurrection of the Messiah and have turned to him for the forgiveness of sins. But with that message, we've received the Spirit to empower us to be ones who go out and tell others the good news so that they might turn, repent, be saved, receive the Spirit and tell yet more people. And so it goes on. A small group of people, the 11 disciples and some hanger-onerers, who were confused, who were probably emotionally all over the place, who, who didn't have it all locked down, took hold of Jesus' hard words to go out and tell people. And they might have looked like idiots. And we know that for many of them, it got worse than that. And they didn't just look foolish, but they ended up suffering significant persecution for this foolish message that clashed against what the world wanted to hear and what the world thought it knew. But it changed the world. 
And since that day, you can no longer fit all the Christians in the world in one small room. In fact, around the whole globe, for centuries, the people of God have been receiving and passing on this message of salvation. This crazy news that a dead man won the victory, is the king, and rose to a new and amazing kind of life that we can inherit if we turn to him for forgiveness of our sins. And our charge today is to do the same, to keep passing it on. If you're not a believer, the first call on you is to repent and have your sins forgiven, that great gift and promise of God. And if you are, then you need to tell others so that they can receive the forgiveness, joy, hope, secure salvation. Ultimately, they can receive everything that anyone could ask for and want and themselves become messages for the next generation and the one after that and the one after that until Jesus returns in his glory, his glory that there's been a glimpse of, but his glory that is still yet to come in its fullness. Let me pray for us as people who follow the risen Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the crazy news of the gospel that does not in many ways make sense, that is not something we could figure out, that is not intuitive, but that cuts across everything that so many people think they know in so many ways. That a dead man is alive, that his death was a victory, that he reigns and rules even though the rulers knocked him down. And uh, Father, there are many of us who have many questions and many things we don't understand. And we pray that you'd please help us uh, to continue to work through and understand and grow deeper and fuller in our knowledge and understanding of our Lord and Saviour. But we pray that uh, what we don't know wouldn't stop us from doing us from what we're called to do. We pray, Father, that we would not be hindered in sharing the good news because we feel like we don't know enough. The disciples didn't know much and they did it. We pray that we wouldn't be hindered from telling the good news because we're nervous that we'll look like a group of idiots. Uh, Father, we are happy to be idiots if that's what it means to serve Jesus because we know that the world's assessment of us is not your assessment of us. And Father, we pray that we would be brave to tell the good news, even if it means more than embarrassment, even if it means paying any price. And we pay that price comfortably and freely because we know that if we die... We will rise and we're confident that that happens because it's been seen. The Lord Jesus Christ has shown us life after death that we have in his name. So we pray to you and we offer ourselves to you with confidence. Amen.